thank you for joining us today in miniature wargaming labs my name is james and today i am joined by nick from planet 28 the great little indie game that uh brian and myself enjoy how are you doing today nick i'm good thank you very well how are you uh doing just fine uh i know due to the time difference i'm joining you early in the morning um mm -hmm. <laughs> well let me ask you um I brought you on because you are the game designer of Planet 28. And um, I hadn't heard about this game on Kickstarter. It's before Kickstarter started absorbing a lot of my spare income. Um, mm, as it does. <laughs> but I have backed your latest uh, Kickstarter with uh, Planet 28. So um, why don't you go ahead and give us the uh, elevator pitch? How would you describe the game? The way I describe it is it's my version of Inquisitor for people who can't do an amazing amount of arithmetic <laughs> because that's me. Um, so it's people who want to play those kind of games with, you know, very narrative heavy, a few characters, lots of um, potential for world building and conversion and all kinds of crazy miniatures, but don't necessarily want a very deep rule set. Um, I, de I describe it as something you can chuck in your gaming case and use in between bigger games. All right. Um... Well, knowing that you made that game and you brought up Inquisitor, how would you describe um, your origin story? How did you get into tabletop miniature wargaming? Because to get Planet 28, there must have been an arc that led oh, you yeah. to this uh, um, ultimate moment. So I, I got into gaming through, like many people I know, through the Citadel uh, Battles in Middle-earth Partworks magazine which came out in the UK at the same time as the Lord of the Rings films. So 2001, when I was seven, I think. Yeah. Um, and basically from there, it was just, well, I got into that. I got to painting Lord of the Rings miniatures and then discovered through that uh, Warhammer 40K, which I instantly liked because it was full of guns compared to Lord of the Rings, which was not. Um, and that's just more fun and engaging. And it kind of, it interested me more because there was this kind of loose sense that you could just create your own nonsense in that world. So that kind of really hooked me in. And I've just sort of done that forever since then, basically. Um, and then when I went to university, I started working in a tabletop gaming shop and just got exposed to all the other games that I could get on staff discount and just lived in this very small room full of bits of games that I bring home from work. Uh, so yeah, it was it was kind of just a, an ongoing collection of stuff that I'd pick up from charity shops or pick them up from car boot sales or flea markets. I'd always just get random miniatures. I'd never have an army. I don't think I've ever actually had a full army, despite now being 20 full years of collecting. Everything was just, I'd convert a character that I thought was cool and it would go on the shelf. And I don't think I'd ever have more than like three of a particular type of something. They'd all just be their own thing. Um, and then when I was in the gaming shop, I kind of became more aware of the Inquisitor 28 or Ink 28 movement of miniatures. Um, and that just really caught me because I went, oh, well, that, that's sort of what I do already. You know, I, I butcher all my miniatures in this kind of crazy Toy Story way. And here's all these other people doing it. So I'm not, not as weird as I initially thought in my approach to collecting. Uh, 
And I'd never really got into 40K as a game. I loved the universe, I loved the models, but the actual game always kind of put me off because it was so big. And Inquisitor, I knew about it and I played a game when I was younger, but it was a little bit too advanced for me as a kid. And like I say, I'm not a mathematical person. Inquisitor was a little bit heavy on the arithmetic. So when I was then doing my master's and lockdown hit, I kind of went, well, I want to play games with all these miniatures I've got in my flat. Um, I don't really have a rule system that can do what I want it to do, so I'll just make one. Um, and that was not Planet 28. That was the first draft was something way too complex from someone who'd never actually bothered to try designing a game before. Planet 28 was sort of three or four refinements down the line um, a couple of months later, and that's sort of where that came from. So yeah, uh, kind of a direct line from Lord of the Rings straight to this through a mad collection of random stuff that I just get secondhand. I have to admit when um, I saw the first Planet 28 uh, zine that uh, Brian purchased off your uh, Kickstarter, when you flip through the artwork, I did think in two directions, the uh, Blanchitsu um, Inquisitor mm -hmm. line um, or also the uh, Flash Gordon like 1980s movie and i thought oh yeah go either way it has that same vibe to it or if you want to go back to like the rocketeer or commander cody from like the 20s and 30s shows that's, there that's kind of stuff i i do enjoy is that kind of pulp sci-fi and i think that's sort of why um because I, I don't know how popular they were in the us but in the uk we had jerry anderson stuff i think you'd have like thunderbirds and stingray and things yes yeah. yeah um I loved those as a kid and a lot of my attention was focused on kind of that aesthetic for sci-fi kind of 1980s chunky analog stuff um despite not being in any way futuristic now that still appeals to me so that's sort of where the visuals come from is more kind of that that time period and then also yeah i could never i could never afford actual new games workshop stuff on pocket money so i would always get it from charity shops and that meant i was always kind of three editions behind everything else so i think um my first one for rule book was actually road trader which i got from a charity shop in the village wow <laughs> and so that was that was the artwork that i had so i'd go in the shop and people would be on i think at the time fifth edition which had you know lovely clean artwork nice big color spread photography um, very refined and I was there with my little copy of Road Trader just going, look at this, this guy with a with like a hoverboard or this guy who's got a stupid name. That was sort of my understanding of what 40K was. And that's unfortunately perpetually damaged my understanding of how I approach things. <laughs> well, is there, um, how would you explain the universe? Because um, we've jumped around between like Thunderbirds, um, some Flash Gordon, uh, Necromunda, Inquisitor. How would you describe the theme of the universe? Or, I mean, you don't really have any lore assigned to it. This is a miniature agnostic game. Yeah. What's your take on it? Um, it's interesting, actually. It's sort of lore has kind of emerged over time as I've kind of created stuff for it, especially with the stuff on Patreon that I put out on the Facebook page. It's kind of snippets of lore. Um, I, I like to think of it as a kind of a bit more 2000 AD Red Dwarf in its approach, where it's okay. a kind of, there might be a big galactic empire, but there's also just other planets. There's other stuff going on. It's kind of this more just sort of a loose background of 
vaguely aesthetically coherent sci-fi. So I, I like the kind of um, somewhat Art Nouveau visual style that has sort of accidentally emerged for the game, where you've got uh, kind of slightly cyberpunky looking weapons with more fluty, flowery armor and decoration. But again, that's that's more just something that happened coincidentally. And as a result, I, sort of why I've come to quite enjoy it is that there was no real coherent plan for how things were supposed to look. And as a result, I think it's emerged a bit more naturally rather than trying to sit down and go, these are the factions, this is the universe, this is how it all works. I like to think of it more as just sort of a sandbox where theoretically anything could fit into it or you can just take the rules and use them for your favorite sci-fi universe of your own choosing. Now, would you describe um, the game um, as a flavor game or a tournament game? So did you imagine this? Did you imagine this Ooh, as I'm... like, like taking this as like, okay, 14 on 14 ITS world tournament of Planet 28 or something Absolutely you throw it not. under the club? Absolutely not. Because that's just not, not something that I have any experience of. Um, I, the closest I've ever got to a tournament was setting up the tables at the game shop for other people to have their tournament um, and then selling them drinks and chocolate at the back. Like, it's not something I've ever played in and it's not an approach that I get a lot out of because for me it's more about the story and the fun and pushing soldiers around and really the whole thing for me is kind of almost a justification for having all these miniatures. It's like I want to do something with them so the game is that. Um, someone did ask me about doing a tournament of it and asked me for recommendations. I just went, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask because I don't know how tournaments work. I, I wouldn't even know how to organise who pairs with who. It's just not my thing. So for me, it's much more of a bring it out of the club, go, oh, what if we were robbing a bank? Okay, here's a bank and do this and do this and then just play it as you go along kind of thing. All right. Um... For the listeners out there, how would you describe the mechanics of the game? Because I think, um, is this a D- 2D6, a D10, mm. a D20 system? How, how would you uh, approach like um, how the game is handled? Yeah, so it's fundamentally a D10 roll under system, which comes from you know attempting to kind of emulate Inquisitor, which was a D100 system kind of simplifying it by taking it down a whole metric. Um, So it's fundamentally, it's D10 roll under. That's literally an order of magnitude. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's an order of magnitude simpler. You've got a very limited number of statistics for your characters. You've got fighting, shooting, agility. Those are your three kind of core stats that you're rolling under to achieve actions. You have two actions a turn. Turns alternate from character to character based on their agility which is a mechanic from Confrontation, the original Games Workshop prototype Necromunda game, which I was reading over at the time. I went, oh, that's a neat mechanic. I'll steal that. Um, So uh, fundamentally, it's D10. You do need a full set of percentile uh, role-playing dice because the other dice are used for weapons. So the way weapons work is that they have a, a damage dice you roll, so you might have a, a D6 weapon, the maximum damage that's ever gonna do is D6. You might have a four D20 weapon, which could potentially do 80 damage, et cetera, et cetera. Those, that doesn't exist. There isn't one of those, but there could be. 
if I really dislike something. I was, I was trying to remember in the rule book, did I miss the 4D20 no. weapon? <laughs> I'm going to make one now. That's yeah. Fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, and it's... It's also not a game with pre-built characters. So there is a character creation system, which is relatively simple. It's point-based. If you've ever put together an army for 40K or you've played D&D or any kind of role-playing game, it's a really simple character creation system. You buy your stats, you buy your equipment for points, and then you've got traits and abilities. Traits are kind of passive qualities of your character that change the way they interact. They might give you a a bonus to your shooting if you are, say, above a character, or they might give you extra hit points or make you faster. Abilities are active, special actions a character can do during a turn. So things like psychic powers or things like being able to heal another character are abilities. Um, not all traits and abilities are good. There are negative traits as well. So you can make a character cheaper by giving them, say, a bad leg or make them blind in one eye for a reduction in shooting skill. Um, which is something I took from role-playing games because I just really liked the idea that your characters are characters and they might not all be super proficient, superhuman soldiers. You know, they might just be Dave from the shop who has a gun and has picked it up during the game, you know. Um, because those are the kind of characters I like. I like characters who are a bit naff and a bit rubbish. I don't win many games, if that's not obvious. Yeah, well... The way you put that made me think of uh, Shaun of the Dead. When you think of, oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think in his comparison to shows like American Zombie movies, it's always these guys gunned up and armed to the teeth and expert shots. Yeah, and like they miss every shot with the rifle. And maybe that's maybe it's a, a fundamentally British game that you should play it with somewhat rubbish characters who you could conceivably meet in like your local off license. That's I think the there's... power level you're starting at. Well, I think there is that um, um, flavor of game of where like you're talking like space games of where it's not a professional band of elite forces, but it's like the scum of the universe yeah. cobbled together. And that's, and that's what I like, you know, that's, um, that was always what drew me to things like Necromunda and Inquisitor as well later on was the fact that you weren't always, um, you weren't always playing in the grand epic narratives of the universe you were playing in the really gritty life or death scenarios where on, on the universal scale of things, you know, a game of Necromunda means nothing. Whether or not your gang steals the gold or kills their opponents has no impact on the wider world. But to those characters, that is the world. Um, and within their world, that, you know, bloke who might actually be not a very good shot might be the best shot they have. And so there's room for these characters to take on a kind of grandiose element without necessarily needing to be over the top, bombastic, hu beyond human warriors. Um, not that you can't make those characters with Planet 28, you can. There is there's power armor, there's all these stats. You could make something incredibly powerful and game-breaking if you wanted to. Um, but it's, if you do, it's going to be even funnier when one-legged Dave shoots it to death. Well, when you were designing um, the rule set, were you going for um, a simulation of combat or were you trying to capture um, cinematic outcomes? Like you said that, you know, a 3% chance that the one-legged guy with the single-shot blaster hits Darth Vader. Um, so you're trying to get that cinematic um, event. 
What were you going yeah. through there? Because normally, I'm, like I'm some of these so. games, some of these games you can actually like, play the mechanics and feel like certain movies, and other mm-hmm. ones are just like, well, I'm uh, playing a modeling a modeling game of modern like skirmish mm-hmm. combat. What were you going for? I definitely say it's more meant to be a kind of um, cinematic casual experience. It's designed more for ease of play than it is any real sense of simulation or real life depth. Um, that's not to say there wasn't you know thought put into how certain things behave, but you know um, take something like like Inquisitor, which is a game I will keep referring back to. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, that kind of tried to strike a balance between a lot of simulation and a lot of narrative, and it got a bit bogged down. Whereas this, I was just sort of going more, right, what's the most basic mechanics we can have? What's the simplest way to get this model over there attacking that guy? And then how can we then give room to add narrative to that? So the actual game mechanics I've described as kind of this very bare bones system that you can rip out and reuse and retailer to other things. And it's only when you add in the kind of character creation, the weapons, the abilities, the traits and stuff, that's where the um, the narrative emerges. I think the narrative is supposed to come from the characters and the game almost takes a backseat and is just sort of this thing that you use to facilitate the interactions between those characters. Right. Now, um, let's talk about the model count of the game. Because like you said, mm-hmm. when I was going through the rule book, as looking at the um, customization of the characters, I wasn't thinking so much of the um, point system of Rogue Trader. It actually made me think more of Dungeons and Dragons. Now, mm. you didn't have the number of um, like the six traits in there. You didn't go to that level. But there was this idea that you were taking a model and you could look at the different elements on the model and you could go to your lookup tables and say, okay, this model has that and there are points assigned. So what was your thought on the model count of like each side going in there? Um, I tend, my warbands tend to vary between two and five to six models. I would say never more than 10, but that's, that's personally just a thing of, I don't, once I get that many models, the game starts to get a bit too big for me to really involve myself in the narrative. I know the game does play above that, especially when you start adding in vehicle rules. And um, I made some rules for fielding squads of troops as well, which were put out through Patreon. They're on the Facebook page. So you can actually play, the rules do work as a sort of low-level army game with kind of two or three squads, a couple of tanks, and then a few hero characters. And then it becomes a bit more rogue tradery. But the ideal model count with just the sort of core system is kind of one to 10 models. I would say. You can play with a single model, um, which I have done. It is fun. It is hard. And you do tend to struggle, but you can do it. Well, I think, um, what was it? Games Workshop for a limited time when they started getting back into um, the small skirmish level games had Shadow War Armageddon. Mm. And um, they have their uh, Sly Marbo character, which is modeled off Rambo. So they actually mm. had rules of like, having your Rambo-like character just go single-handedly and wipe everyone out. And so they had to give them a lot. Yeah, that'd be fun every once in a while. Mm. So um, how much can you um, customize uh, your force? 
like um normally most of these games there's an idea like there's a central i don't know a central node of a point like every model is mm -hmm. the same and then you're just um adding stuff on to it so if i just refer to the book so i don't actually get this wrong <laughs> that would be a little embarrassing um so all your characters start with a skill level of two with 20 hit points and a speed of 10 centimeters um you can't go below two because if you did you can't roll under it everything would be an automatic failure I'm, I personally don't mind that for a certain character if they just always fail fighting. But again, that's uh, putting that limit into the book is kind of helpful. Otherwise, people will do it by accident and then be annoyed. Um, so you can't go below that. And then really, customization is a case of how many things you want to add to your character. So the only limit in customization is how much bookkeeping you want to do with how many traits you have to keep track of. Um, so your skills can go up to 10. So you've got eight integers per skill level for each character. Your hit points you can alter with different traits. Likewise, your speed can be altered with different traits. Different armor will alter your speed as well and make you more or less vulnerable to weapons. So I'd say character, character customization, force customization is relatively open. You could do a fair bit with it. You know, once you start adding in um, extra limbs, extra shooting actions per turn, psychic powers, um, the ability to throw your enemies across the field using your mind. You, you can start making some really weird characters uh, that might do really weird things or might really dominate the battlefield, or you can keep it as a really sort of um, salt of the earth gunfightery type of game. All right, I, I was wondering, um, so there's no like, character archetypes or classes in there so there's no like well this is a psionicist and you can only have one no not not necessarily interestingly when when i was first trying to make a game first the first game i tried to make did have that um and i was trying to create these archetypes and i had like the in, the investigator the psionicist very trademark friendly names to not get sued um and what I found was just that as someone who's not amazingly good with uh, numbers, trying to balance those and trying to give them all an individual role that actually made them worth taking was just, it, it wasn't something I was amazingly good at, but also I found that it was limiting the kind of games I actually wanted to play because I'd have a miniature in front of me and go, right, well, what is this miniature that I've made? How would I put that in the game? Um, and I'd sort of go, well, I, I don't actually know because, you know, it's a, it's a man in power armor, but in my mind, he's also got like a split personality. He might betray you mid-game, and that I can't really be an archetype, the unreliable one, because no one would play it. Um, so if I made it more open, made it more a case of right, here's the things you can do, go nuts with it. Uh, that that made more sense to me. So yeah, we, I did look at archetypes, I did look at that kind of stuff, and I just found that it was not something I was amazingly good at working with. So I left it. All right, guys, I think when I was looking at that, uh, I think the closest corollary like right out right now that's hot is like Stargrave. And that you have yeah. like mm. the uh, captain, the first mate, and then you have like um, yeah. all these other ones out there. But with your rule set, let's say I wanted to have a group of um, laser sword wielding 
individuals in robes mm -hmm. who could use their mind powers to move object. I could have a whole crew of those guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, when uh, you set up the play area, what what size of play area were you looking at? Um, um, is this a? F I know you and reading your your rule books. For some reason, you decided to use the metric system, which uh, I think. Yes. Um, most of the world, and when I say that, I mean the United States has decided not to adopt, but I heard other countries have picked it up, decided to run yeah. with it. Um, we're, uh, we're suspicious we'll of it in this country. That's what I want to with them <laughs> Well, it does confuse me when I read uh, some of the rule books coming out is that there's the English system and the metric system used interchangeably. I, I, did, I did consider that for the second edition, and I thought, no, because I will get confused writing things. Um, <laughs> it will be too much potential for me to mess it up. So I, don't, I won't be doing that, unfortunately. Um, so playing area, I generally, and I'm gonna switch between Imperial and Metric now. I tend to go two foot by two foot to about four foot by four foot, um, which would be 60 centimeters by 60 centimeters by 120 by 120 centimeters, retrospectively. Um, but I have found it plays quite well on a smaller, a smaller board. I did have a playing board that was made of a, uh, a wall-mounted pin board, which was only you know, about 40 by 30 centimeters. And with plenty of terrain, it was quite fun, if a bit lethal, because every weapon is in range of you. Um, and then I've played it on dungeon tiles and on kind of modular boards set up in weird arrangements. And it works, it works quite well because you're sort of Weapons, because they're ranged in centimeters, don't have terrifically long ranges. I think the longest ranged weapon is 40 centimeters, which roughly, roughly translates to about 18 inches. Someone's going to correct me on that. I know it, but I'm trying to work it out in my head. Um, which, if you think in terms of 40K, that's, that's not much more than a standard infantry weapon in that sense. So because your, your weapons are such short range, there is an incentive to move around. So a small space works well with lots of terrain. It, it's easy for a long weapon to dominate, but if you've got enough terrain, if there's enough space for people to move around, a short weapon can be just as effective in the right situation. All right. Uh, I think when I was looking at it, you mentioned um, the smaller board, the uh, Games Workshop's tilting boards. They've gone to that mm. new form factor. Um, yes, I've actually got some just over there that need painting. That's yeah, the exact reason. <laughs> yeah, so looking at your rule book is like, um, okay, well, I could actually play this on kilting boards. And mm. they have the rogue trader models that they've started putting out again and some of the Necromunda models. So it's like that fits the artwork and theme you're going for. And I, yeah. I think for me, I always ask Plary because um, travel and where mm. can I get a game in? finding um stores with six a lot of six by four tables that are mm. open um anywhere in the country where i travel is not always an option so it's like where can i throw this down at like um a starbucks or a barnes and noble that will take it up and your games seem to fit that now i have mm. thought about getting some of the um like D, D has in those books spiral bound books of where they have different yes. interiors and i have thought about that's almost like what uh little bit larger than 12 inches by 12 inches but given some of the like the very tight corridors and like blasters um pistols like okay maybe that could work i haven't pushed it that small yeah. 
um, or even the tiles from Imperial Assault. Okay, like yeah. As well. A few of those chucked in a chucked in a game case spread out would be, be great. You could do it uh, Space Hulk style. Okay, which I heard they're going to re-release. Oh. <laughs> so, um, now, <laughs> is there a um, campaign feature uh, to this book? There is. Um, so you've got you've so talked a lot about narrative. So yeah. can you link these narratives together? Yeah, so that was something that was sort of, that was like top of the list from starting it was I wanted to be something that your characters carry on. Because again, I wrote it more as something that you have to facilitate your miniatures. And there's no point building a miniature for a 15 minute skirmish and then sticking on a shelf and never gets used again. Or you have to repurpose it and it loses its name and its identity. So there is a, a campaign system. In the current edition, it is a bit bare bones. Um, so you've got a sort of scenario generator chart. You can play with a game master as well. And you've got plot points to sort of tell you what you're doing. And then the campaign is just a sort of experience progression system. So characters do certain things in the game. They get a certain amount of experience points, which they can then use to buy armor, progress, convert to different things. If they get killed or injured, there's also an injury chart so they can have lasting injuries that will stay with them as they go on. Um, the campaign system going forward with the second edition is going to be more similar to the campaign system I did with Brutal Quest, the fantasy kind of uh, adaptation of this, which was a little bit more in-depth and had some off-table in-between game elements. So in-between games, you can have your adventurers or your party or your warband go off, do things, have objectives set by a game master that might not necessarily be directly related to the battles on the tabletop, but might have an impact throughout their campaign goal. So going forward, the campaign will be a bit more in depth, but there will still be that really basic, simple, I did this, I get this many points, I can do this system. Um, okay, so that, that brings up the question, um, given the flexibility of your uh, customization uh, system there in the campaign, are you concerned with people min-maxing, like always picking, mm -hmm. um, or do you see a balanced party like um, in D&D, there's always like the tank, like the super armed fighter, there's always the magician. Um, do you see people saying, you know what, we're only gonna have three people, but they're all gonna be power armored and armed to the teeth. Um, I, I suppose, yeah, it, it is possible. And people will always try and do that. I do think, I don't know if I put it in this one, but I know in Brutal Quest and I know in the vehicle's expansion, I have put a disclaimer for exactly that reason, essentially saying you can build incredibly powerful units that can wipe your enemy off the board in one turn, but then you can't play any more games because your enemy's gone. Okay. Um, and I know, you know, Balance is an issue. So one of the things that's prompted a second edition is there are a few things in the first edition that I think need rebalancing. Um, power armor is a good one. The feedback I tend to get is power armor really feels like power armor, but it feels too much like power armor, meaning it's invulnerable in certain situations. So obviously there are always going to be ways to exploit a system. What I'd like to think is that I just want to make it known ahead of time before people approach the system that it's not necessarily a system where having the best units equals having the best game. Um, 
And that sort of comes down to, again, not making an allusion to the idea that it's a tournament system or in any way competitive. You know, people who love competitive gaming may love it and may enjoy it as a competitive game, but it's not going to give them the best competitive experience necessarily because there probably is a kind of a, a solvable character type that you go, right, if I have this, 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 and this, this is objectively best, ignoring the narrative, ignoring uh, character backgrounds, etc. This is best, this will win going forward. Um, yeah, so minimaxing is, is doable for those who want to do it, but I always think with minimaxing, it's kind of one of those things that you do a couple of times and then it gets boring. I, I've known people in role-playing game circles who've minimaxed, and after a while, they tend to give up and start making ludicrously insane characters that are in no way practical, because they've done one extreme, and they go, oh, that was fun, I, won. I beat everything, didn't really do anything, though, and then before you know it, they've come back with, like, a blind gnome firemancer or something who can't do anything but the narrative is more fun and they enjoy the game more. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's something I need to give to Minimaxers more as a kind of get it out of your system thing, have this instead. It's the, uh, well, the bad tasting medicine of the Minimaxer world. I know I brought up the power armor for a um, reason, because I know like if you were going back to the old rogue trader idea, the idea from like the first edition of uh, Warhammer was that space Marines were rare. And so when one, if the Space Marines sent a unit to you, it might actually only be one guy because mm-hmm. that that's all you needed because they yeah. were just so powerful and so invulnerable that any more than one would wipe the table with it. So I, I appreciate that of like having that super powered character there. Um, mm. But not, not only I've seen in systems of like, well, you could take five Space Marines, let's say in your rule mm-hmm. set, but then... In the missions, there'd be no way to complete them because you need yeah. a balanced party to like do secure objectives or do some other action, like um, having and a I hacker. Think, I think that's what would happen very quickly as well. If you and I, I have seen people who've gone touch me and said, "I did this. It was fun. I won. I don't know what to do now." Um, I think if you took kind of a, a you'd have a very small warband for one thing of maybe three or four, you know, heavily power armored, heavy beefed up gunned up guys you'd be you'd be constantly chasing your opponent around the board for one thing because if your opponent was smart what they do is they take 20 dudes with no armor who could just avoid you the entire time um yeah I, i think as much as you could do it you'd be limiting yourself in both the narrative experience and also just in the capacity of what you could actually do in the game because there might be things that you just can't do. You might, if you did that, if you went for the biggest guns, the biggest armor, that's great, but that's going to cost you most of your points. You're not going to have an amazing amount of traits or abilities. You're not necessarily going to be amazingly resistant to, say, psychic powers or heavy weapons or just quicker characters being more mobile than you, etc. Um, so it balance itself out in that way, and that you just always be outnumbered. Um, and yeah, like I say, if, you, if you're playing with a, with a game master who's controlling the campaign and writing your scenarios for you, it would only take that game master to come up with, say, um, oh, you're fighting under the sea and you need to weigh less than a certain amount to swim up to your objective. 
<laughs> and then that player with the power armor troops is stuck on the seabed, not winning games. Yet. So my hope would be that the narrative provides some balance in the hands of a player who really wants to have that kind of experience. Um, and it is the danger of kind of making a system that's meant to be more like a toolbox in that it, it feels like a cop-out on my part to say, no, do it yourself, balance your own games, which is not the case. But to a certain extent, there's always going to be a potential for gaming the system. Um, and a certain degree of moderation may be required. Well, you've mentioned the Game Master a couple times. So let's say bring this book to a club and you drop it off. Is one guy going to have to withdraw from the game, like playing no, to be the Game Master? Not. Absolutely not. The Game Master is optional. Okay. Um, it's, it's more just... Um, so because a lot of this was inspired by the Inc. 28 movement and I was looking at the way a lot of guys were doing their event games where one person would create this whole world and whole narrative and build the tables and build the, the background and come up with the scenarios. They'd normally have a warband in play, but they'd also be moderating the events of the, the game. And I was thinking, well, there's no reason why that can't be an option in this. There's no reason not to have a game master or to have it as an option. Um, so there is, there's, yeah, there's the option for a game master. There's no need for it. The game can be played and is normally played. I've, I've only played one game where I've actually acted as game master. Um, I think the majority of the time it is played as a kind of 1v1 or 1v1v1v1 kind of all against all battle game in that sense. But and I, I always find that the game master is a bit more useful for kind of, I don't want to say enforcing, but enforcing that kind of more narrative attitude towards the game. I was sound because um, in like Necromunda campaigns, um, mm. a lot of times you need a game master to step in to prevent one gang from running away, like yeah. um, winning every game. And then there's like this cascade effect of where since they won the last game, they just always keep winning and no one mm. else can win. Um, now, one of the things I want to talk about is um, in the first edition, um, you had like the base rule book, which is a very short chat book. Then you had some expansions on there. Yeah, there it is. And um, it came in a very nice comic sleeve to protect it in the mail. Mm. Um, so one of the expansions was co-op and solo play, which I think mm -hmm. solo play became very important the last two years. So that was yes. a, a lucky add on there. But even without a pandemic, I noticed co-op play has become really popular um, mm. that concept from board games of like, well, let's not fight each other. Let's work together. So could you describe the co-op and solo play in the game? So the so, solo play was sort of one of those things that did emerge from the pandemic because obviously the, the Kickstarter for the first, the first one as part of the inquest was the very start of lockdown in the UK. So March, 2020. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, and it was only when that came out and was on Kickstarter, people were saying, oh, what about solo rules? Solo wargaming was just not something I'd ever looked into. So I had to sort of immediately go and buy a bunch of books and read them and go, right, how does, how does this actually work? How do you play a game on your own? Um, and when I was doing that, I sort of thought, well, there's no reason why solo play can't also be co-op play. Why, if I'm playing with one warband against an sort of AI active enemy, 
two of us could play against that active enemy and work together. And that reminded me of playing Hero Quest, which okay. I think Hero Quest is fantastic. I love Hero Quest. Um, and one of the things I like about Hero Quest is you play it cooperatively, but there's no obligation on your part to act as a team. So the solo play rules themselves are relatively simple. It's just a, an AI matrix for your enemy units. You generate a warband in the same way you would if you were building your own warband. There is uh, there are some pre-built profiles in that because there's a little campaign in the book, so you can use those if you need to. And then that warband acts in a certain way depending on the scenario on the table. Um, but the co-op play sort of what M kind of brings that to a fore because your characters can take on individual objectives separate to each other. So if you're playing co-op, for example, and you've got two characters each, one character might be desperately in love with an enemy and want to go near them. Another character might be secretly wanting to demolish a building or has some treasure hidden on the board that they need to get to. And you're under no obligation to tell your, your co-op partner about that until you've completed that objective. Um, and I, I liked that because it kind of broke up this idea of solo play that's just right. Here's the objective, here's the enemy, the enemy does this, I'm gonna go over there. Because if you've got more than one objective and maybe one objective contradicts your own objective, it gives you something else to fight against. You're kind of conflicted with your own objectives. And that takes a little bit of pressure off the enemy warband and also gives them bit of an advantage because you might be splitting your forces. You might be going somewhere you don't necessarily need to go or going somewhere that might bring you into the line of fire because the narrative says you would. Um, so yeah, co-op and solo were fun to write for that reason because it's not something I'd ever really thought about. Okay. Uh, no, that's an interesting approach to it. Um, prisoner's Dilemma, um, Deterrence exactly. Theory, the, the suboptimal Preto decision-making. So. And I think also, um, I haven't got the book in front of me, but, oh, I have, but it's, it's buried in the stuff, so I won't bother. Um, if I remember rightly, from my own stuff that I wrote and should remember, in co-op play, you're under no obligation to split your winnings with your partner. So whatever you earn in terms of experience, that's yours. So if there is this kind of desire to progress, or maybe you're thinking three games in, oh, I might betray them because I want this thing for my character in the sense of the campaign. There is actually an incentive to do that. You can be altruistic. You can split your winnings if you want to, but it might not necessarily be what would be in the mind of your character. Um, there is uh, an impetus to betray each other. You know, once you described that, I immediately thought of like uh, the Star Wars solo movie. You know, mm. you spend all this time, you can conduct the heist. And once the heist is done, all of a sudden the blasters come out and say, Who could, who's going to walk away with this? Yeah. I think at the time I was watching a lot of Clint Eastwood films because I was locked indoors. And I, I just went through like uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly and Fistful of Dolls. And went, yeah, that, that's, that's what solo and co-op play should look like. Three dudes with the same objective, all trying to murder each other but only in the right order that they get what they want first. I didn't know if you were going for like Kelly's heroes. You know what? There's enough gold for everybody. <laughs> we'll oh, just no, all no. split it out. The gold is mine and I want it. 
All right. Now, something else you added on um, another rule book uh, in the first edition was vehicle rules. And um, I never went into the vehicle rules, but um, what was your thought? Were you thinking of adding like um, the equivalent of a Jeep with a little gun on it or like the uh, Imperial Guard tank with like a mega weapon and your 4020? Really a bit of everything. <laughs> um, so the, the vehicle rules were sort of, at the time I had built a bunch of robots, like genuinely walking kind of robots with 28 millimeter fortresses built onto their back. Um, and was sort of playing with them on my coffee table. And I thought it'd be good if I could play a game of these. And I started writing a new game uh, that was kind of these like mega cities fighting each other. And people had asked for Vehicle Rules Plenty anyway. And I didn't really know how to scale it. And I came up with this system of doing it like, like a kind of almost like a Lego system where you literally have a chart of blocks and you just go, right, that block, that block, that block, that block, that's the vehicle. Um, so it kind of worked out that it scales quite well for everything. You can do something as simple as a motorbike and sidecar because it's a bit more abstract in how it works. You have an engine block, you have a crew block, and then you just add things to that. So you've got like a, a weapon turret block, a armor block, and each of those blocks adds things. And when you go over a certain number, you go up a size scale, which changes the way the vehicle behaves. Um, so you, yeah, it, it works quite well in that sense for doing things from like really simple, basic civilian car up to 20 turrets, mega laser, giant tank thing. Um, I kind of think of it as a bit like if you've played Metal Slug, where you kind of, there'll be a level where you're kind of going along with your little shotgun and you'll fight someone in a Jeep. And then the next enemy boss is a city-sized airship bedecked with guns shooting turrets at you. Um, you can do both of those things. All right. Um... Now, something that we've kept bringing up is your initial Kickstarter. I've mentioned the second edition. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things I want to understand is I've never actually interviewed a game designer who's gone from a first edition to a second edition. So mm -hmm. what was your logic and thought process of why to even do that? Because I know you started out with a base book and you added solo co-op, you add vehicle rules. You talked about adding a um, squad-based skirmish level to it. So is there an idea that as you add stuff to a base game, there's like a rules bloat or um, yeah. software bugs that occur in the system. Essentially, yeah. Um, it, it was kind of a case of rules bloat really where I'd, I'd sort of ended up in this position where there were a lot of things I wanted to add to the game or a lot of things that I thought would be cool to make. Um, and it kind of got to the point where it's like, well, there's three of these little zines for the core rule book. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've made since that I think would be good to add into the core system. On top of that, you know, I didn't get anyone to proofread this before I sent it off to the printers. Um, so it is a bit unbalanced. There are things that need changing. There are spelling mistakes and grammar issues that need correcting. Um, and then I did Brutal Quest, which added a bit more depth to the mechanics. And I thought, well, actually, I like I like the way that the game has evolved over two years of kind of adding stuff to it. It would be really good if it was a compilation. And so I thought about doing it just as a kind of 50-page little pamphlet. And I thought, well, if I'm doing a, an update, rather than just binding them together, let's 
look at what there is, combine it into a single system, fix any balance issues, add in the stuff I want to add and make it a more cohesive toolbox to work from. And from that, one of the big motivations for it being a second edition was the idea of publishing it on an open license so that anybody could use it to publish their own Planet 28 content. Same as the um, Wizards of the Coast game license for fifth edition D&D or the Morkbork open license where with the rule system, you can publish your own derivative content. You can sell it, you can share it, etc. It's your system to work with. So the idea for the second edition, as well as combining everything, as well as getting it tuned up and getting it kind of as good as it could be and having it in a nice shiny hardback format, was also to put it on a, a level where I felt comfortable handing it out and going, right, this is yours now. I am not disowning it because I'll still keep making things for it, but it's at a point now where I consider it the, the building point for everything anyone wants to do with it. So that was sort of the motivation was kind of how good do I want this to be and how much stuff do I want to be in it before I hand it off to the community at large and say, right, here's the starting point. Here's the minimum amount of stuff that I thought you'd need to really build on this. And that just means, you know, adding in extra weapons, adding in extra armor, fixing some balance issues, getting it nice and pretty and yeah, all that stuff. Uh, I, I like the open license idea because I remember when D&D switched to like the D20 system and started mm. opening up their world. Um, so my supervisor at the time, because um, I think there's a fear that when you go to an open license, people will buy less of your stuff. Um, mm. Using him as an example, I think he bought 20 different books on dwarves for the uh, D20 system, like any yeah. company that put out an expansion for dwarves, he bought. So it's not like yeah. he spent less because of the open license, he just spent more. So yeah. um, I, I think there's that fear that, well, if I open my system up, I'll lose my competitive advantage. It's like, actually, I find it's the opposite. People just consume more once they can. It's also, um, it's also that over the last couple of years, a lot of people have got in touch with me and said, I'd really like rules for this it would be great if you could do this or i'm working on a campaign setting and i want to use planet 28 how would i do it or are you okay with me using it and the answer is always yeah that's really cool go for it or i've, I've got a huge list on my laptop of like half finished planet 28 expansions based on <laughs> things people have said to me that sounded cool that i started working on and I, I i can't make all that content that people want but it would be great if there was a system they could pick up for miniature gaming and go, oh, right, well, I'll use this. This works. It's open license. It's free to download. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with it. And then it opens up, because again, inspired by kit bashing and people doing their own thing, it opens that up to be a system for that. It expands the kit bashing outwards. So if you've got your own imaginary universe you play your games in or your own fiction, make a source book. Tell me about this world and tell me how how I might play in it. Make a make a campaign setting. Um, I'm really keen on the idea of doing a, a not a legally name changed red dwarf expansion for it, which you know no one would want if I put it in the core book. If that was the game on its own, I think the market for that is me and maybe like three people I know. 
But if it's just an expansion, it's out there and it uses a system people already know, then more people might look at it and they might decide, actually, yeah, I, I really want to watch Red Dwarf. No, I, I could actually see a, um, an opening in like a, the miniature magazines. So like something like Wargame mm-hmm. Illustrated. Of uh, I know Joseph McCullough puts extra content into different yeah. magazines across there of like, do you want to do a Masters of the Universe themed Planet 28? Because you've seen in like yeah, the cartoons, exactly. gu- um, guns exist, but everyone prefers to use swords. So for some yeah. reason. Um, and it's similar. So I know uh, Ganesha Games who do Song of Blades and Heroes, they're really good at letting people use that system for things so there's loads of brilliant expansions for that that people have taken the system and done their own thing and i kind of just wanted to take the next step of that and go right you don't even need to ask me as long as it you know meets these basic legal requirements and it's not gonna deliberately upset anyone go for it so you've uh gone back to kickstarter to um Mm -hmm. push this game um what was the logic behind that? Why'd you pick Kickstarter? Um, so Over like Wargames Vault of like saying, just yeah. sticking it. Well, it will be on Wargames Vault. Um, so the thing is, well, with the first edition, it was always going to be that it was free to download the PDF. And I want that to still be the case. So that's still the case with second edition when I get it finished and published. Um, but... Annoyingly, in, in one way it's annoying, in one way it's not. Kickstarter has sort of become an essential promotion tool for new tabletop gaming projects. And it is valuable in the sense that I could not afford to fund £14,000 of printing off my own back. I just couldn't do that. Um, and if I did, or if I could afford it, there's no guarantee that all those books will sell in a time period that actually makes it cost effective. Whereas with Kickstarter, it gives everyone a central point to look at and go, right, this is a project. I've got this much time to get in on it before it gets published. And it allows everyone to kind of come in at the same level. So for from a kind of business perspective, it's essential in that sense. I don't know that publishing it outside of Kickstarter would get the same level of attention. And I, I think that's more just to do with Kickstarter has kind of become almost just an expanded part of the top gaming community. It's kind of part of our platform now, which is not a bad thing. I think Kickstarter does, does provide quite a good platform and a lot of really interesting games have come from it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was partly just, I can't afford to print an A5 hardback book off my own back. And if I could, I wouldn't be able to afford the time off work to do it in a reasonable timescale. But it was also just, it's a really nice way to kind of have this thing that people who've already got the game can get in on and feel like they're kind of all stepping in at the same point. Everyone who wants the second edition is there together going, right, here it is. We'll start from here. Let's start a new journey. It's kind of a nice catalyst for everyone. So one thing that um, I liked about the second edition Kickstarter, because I didn't see the first edition one, but you had an option in there of two rule books and with two PDFs. So I appreciate that because there are so many companies that put out like the two player starter set, but there's one rule book. You know, when you say two player, that means there's two people and we don't want to hand the book back and forth (laughs) to each other. (laughs) Um, I will, I will confess that that was 
a few people had said, oh, I want an extra copy. And I learned from a couple of Kickstarters ago that doing add-ons is a nightmare in terms of administration. Uh, just trying to keep track of who's ordered what oh, through okay. the spreadsheet the Kickstarter send you. Because um, they send it all as an Excel document. And it, it's fine, but it's not the most intuitively put together system. So it's basically to avoid me having this big kind of Charlie Kelly style pin board of they've ordered this and they've got this and they want two of these. So I just thought, right, I'll just do the option for I want two, please. And that's takes that out of my hands because that'll be a separate document. So I'm afraid that's more motivated by laziness on my part than it is uh, altruism. Well, you know, it, it was actually great because I could get on and like text someone and said, hey, the Kickstarter's out. There's a two-player bundle. Do you want to get it? Okay, I'll pay for it when it comes in. Pay the other half. Like, this is okay. great. It simplified it from my approach because I didn't have to go into kit backer kit, say, okay, I want one and add another well, one on. So, yeah, it simplified it on both sides of the transaction. And so it, I, it makes, yeah, it makes everything. So, you know, sometimes laziness prevails. There's a lot of So looking at Planet 28 going forward, are there any other future expansions you have planned for it? Now that you've got so, a yeah. fully unified core rulebook, we've talked about open license. What's your mm. next steps for the game? So one of the things I, I really want to do is, um, is setting like source books. So in the same way that D&D had a like, Dark Sun setting or Forgotten Realms and stuff, I really love the idea of having this core rulebook that kind of has a, a really hands-off approach to world building. And then you can have a separate, you know, little pamphlet that gives you 15 pages of really intense world. And maybe it's just a single planet within the universe. Maybe it's an alternate dimension, maybe it's something. Um, so I'd really love to do one kind of a bit more tongue in cheek, 2000 AD comedy sci-fi style, um, or maybe like a paranormal World War One. Um, you know, I, I was actually jumping to- What uh, I really to do was do something. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I, I immediately when you brought that up, I was thinking uh, Conflict 47, Octan, yeah. Cthulhu, World War II of like... Exactly that know, kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, because one thing, you know, that I've sort of more realized from people showing me what they've made and what they've played, I've seen some really interesting uses of the rules outside of what I would use it for. Um, someone sent me a, a battle report where they were playing kind of... Uh, flintlock, like fantasy Napoleonic wars with orcs hmm. and ogres in shakos and muskets using the rule system. I was like, well, I'm, I would never have thought of that, but I'm really glad that you have. Um, so exactly that kind of stuff, you know, I'd really love to do one just based on the artwork of Mobius and just doing like a little art book with some snippets of world building. And at the end, just a list of maybe this is how you play this. Because I think by having it on an open license, it frees up the potential of not every expansion needs to be a core expansion. You can have something that's really rules light or just here's a visual guide, here's a bunch of miniatures, here's a converting guide that's roughly for this system. It, it gives you a bit more freedom to kind of make stuff and have a core to refer to. Um, because I want, I want it to be something that people can use creatively it's the idea is it encourages and facilitates creativity along the same way that kit bashing does uh, bringing up the uh, napoleonics I, had, I hadn't thought about your because we always talk about reskinning 
the games because mm. um, I think one of my favorite ones was one of the uh, miniature magazines printed in the UK. I can't remember the name was like, we'll take um, Warhammer's kill team and reskin it for World War One. Yeah. Um, okay, but yours you don't have to be sci-fi; you could be steampunk. So Victorian yeah, steampunk. Exactly. So I I'd always push like well. When I did like playing tutorials for your game, it's like, well, what miniatures can you use? It's like, gosh, I, this is going to be a long segment <laughs> of well, deciding <laughs> of how you can reskin this. But you know, and that's, that's and that was just limited like. to sci-fi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of you know, I've got Brutal Quest, which is a very fantasy-focused version of this. Um, we'll save that for even, another episode because I didn't yeah. Read that file. Um, but even that, you know, when I was writing it, I was sort of going, well, I can really ham up the fantasy in this and add new things to it because the core rules are not so setting specific that they need to be radically readjusted and i think sort of going back to the very very start in a nice neat circular fashion at the exact one hour mark um <laughs> you know when we were talking about what the rule system is it is that it is meant to be a really bare bones core to work from you kind of add your own uh, filter to it so yeah you can pick it up and go right I'm playing it exactly as the pictures in the book tell me to which is there's a man in power armor there's some mutants there's some soldiers there's some guns that's what I'm playing or you can pick it up and go I'm using this entirely with my collection of one 100 scale Gundam figures and that's what it is to you yeah and that's what I like now, have you ever thought about, so looking at your artwork, have you ever thought about miniatures with the game? I know that's um, always the heavy lift out there, but even like STL downloads or like so a special I, I Kickstarter sculpt, run. I do have miniatures available through Mammoth Miniatures that I've sculpted. And I do, um, I also do a service where I'll publish miniatures for other sculptors to kind of support uh, hand sculpting. Because I'm... I am a painfully analog man. I can't can't do digital. <laughs> no uh, ZBrush so, for you, or uh. oh, I've I've got it. I've paid for it. I've bought the license. I can't use it. Um, <laughs> so I, I do make miniatures, and I have looked at it before and gone, I could do like a full starter set for this with miniatures of what I want. The problem is, I am too I'm too much of a butterfly when it comes to projects. So I've got miniatures in my web store that are usable with Planet 28, but in the same way that any miniature is usable with Planet 28. And I think in a way I sort of avoided assigning them that role and saying these are the Planet 28 miniatures because I don't want anyone to ever pick up the rules and feel like they need to buy those or that they those miniatures must come before their miniatures. I'd much rather someone has some miniatures they love but doesn't know what to play with them, gets these rules for free and just has an excuse to play with the miniatures they want to play with. I'd rather that than them ever feel like they need to give me money to play the game in the right way. All right. Well, as we start wrapping this up, one of the things with you bringing that up is um, new players versus experienced players. Mm -hmm. So Brian, who's on the channel with me, we've gotten into this debate over um, what is an entry-level rulebook. Because I remember growing up, D&D um, &D 2nd Edition was my, was my game. And I remember someone presenting to me um, Vampire Masquerade and like showing me the rule book. And I was flipping through it. And it's like, but where are the rules? 
are we just standing around telling each other stories? Like, is this just playground imagination? Um, but I think the idea is like some rule books are so short and so simple that if you didn't have experience playing other games, you wouldn't understand how to fill in the gaps. Like if you dropped mm-hmm. in front of the new players, it's like, okay, now what do I do? Or an experienced yeah. player say, okay, well, first I'll need a player on the miniatures. Um, so how do you tackle that? Is, is this an entry-level game? In its current form, in first edition, I would say no. I'd, I'd say that, and part of that is that, obviously, coming into it as someone who already knows a lot of the conventions of wargaming, you take shortcuts you don't realize you're taking. So exactly, example, that's, that's where I was um, going, yeah. One thing that I've now come to really respect is every Warhammer 40,000 rulebook always has a section on what is a battle game? What, what is a miniature game? And at the time, I used to dismiss it and go, I know what that is. Why do they put this in? And now I look at it and go, no, actually, I know what that is. The kid who's just bought this does not know what that is. Or the kid who's got this for Christmas or has found it on his brother's shelf doesn't know what it is. Um, so going forward, it is something I, I want to address more. And it, it may just be that paragraph of, before you begin, here is what this actually is. Um, and something as simple as that, I know in, yeah, on the first page of the first edition, I do have a little description of what it is, and then what do you need? But I think even just a small paragraph of going, the kind of game this is, what is it? Is it a board game? Do you, how does it actually work? How does it relate to things they might already know? Um, and I think that is difficult because you're kind of trying to put yourself in the mind of someone who doesn't already know those things. So in answer to your question, I don't actually know going forward how I'll do that. That's, um, <laughs> that is on my big to-do list of second edition things is put a paragraph in for people who've never never played a board game before. Well, that's why I noticed um, a lot of people attack like Games Workshop. But I mm-hmm. think what they do is um, they, are, they are the soul so oh, people yeah. learn, they, they break people in. So I think a lot of the independent ecosystem could not exist without I mean, GW or Warlord. Uh, oh, yeah. They're you the know, people I'll, that break down the conventions and explain the conventions yeah. and people spin off and say. And you get it in uh, role playing as well. People dislike D&D. You go, why would, why would you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? It's so outdated. You go, well, okay, you're saying that as someone who's played it for 10 years and got bored of it. But as someone who's never played before, that starts box with this little pamphlet is is the start point you've got to put yourself in the mind of a novice to think forward um yeah for all the things that you might criticize games workshop for being open to new players shouldn't really be one of them um i have i recently got some of their imperium part work magazines with the 40k models in oh yes obviously yeah. obviously some right over there the yeah scene. yeah <laughs> You know, you find them in the supermarket shelf and there's like a 50 pound model for a fiver and you're buying it. Oh my God, um, yeah. Issue one, yeah. five bucks yeah. for like two captains. <laughs> but um, one of the things that really got me was actually the way that's formulated is that over like 10 magazines, each magazine gives you a thing to play. And by the 10th magazine, you're playing 40K. Now, if you went through that in a day, if you, you know, you're a kid, you've bought them all, you've, put the magazines to the side, you've played with the models, and then someone sits you down and goes, right, you've got these magazines, let's play through it. In a day, you're going to go from not knowing how to play to knowing the fundamentals of the game. If I put the rule book in front of someone and went, right, here's this book, read it and play, that's not going to happen. 
Um, I think, yeah, stuff like that is a really good way to introduce people. Maybe that's maybe that's the idea then. Maybe I need Planet 28, the part work magazine. <laughs> a quick play pamphlet or something that I can have as a PDF with it. But um, no, it is it is something that I do consider when, I, when I've been writing things is how does this actually read to someone who doesn't play port games or tabletop games? My partner is very helpful in that. In the, Okay. Make her play things. <laughs> well, yes, I've I've, I've tried that. I've tried that a couple of times, and no, I'm not going to do that yeah. again. Um, because once again, you get that idea of conventions, and you realize yeah. someone else doesn't know those, and they get frustrated when you don't explain the conventions. But I have the situation of where my daughter has friends who say, mm -hmm. "Oh, you play um, games Warhammer." Um, can you teach me? And it's like, I'd rather teach you planet 28 because oh, it's a shorter, well, well, it's a shorter, well, mm -hmm. because it's like, can you teach me Warhammer? Cause my town has a Warhammer store. Mm -hmm. They're the advertising. They've played D and D. They want to move to tabletop miniatures. So the D and D produces a small fraction of those go off and say, okay, well, I want to play tabletop war games, What it's around games workshop attracts they say oh you play yeah. games workshop can you teach me and i look over at my bookshelf and it's like <laughs> okay there's so much to shove down your little throat but there's yeah. not with planet 28 but with planet 28 it, it, it you don't like you said you don't have the conventions but if i'm your yeah. sherpa yeah a much simpler game to teach which you know what if i ever needed to rename the role of game master sherpa <laughs> is where i'm going with that <laughs> I will guide you up the mountain to the thousand dollar trap. That is uh, a yes. tough yeah. gaming. <laughs> and there's a campaign in itself. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you, Nick. Um, I think come down to the end of my questions here. Is there anything else um, you want to throw out there before we sign off? Like you, you mentioned brutal quest, anything else you want to pitch out here? Oh, uh, let's move some paper. I won't pitch anything. Um, I will say I do, you can buy, you can't buy Plant 28 first edition anymore. I've taken the print copies off sale. You can buy Brutal Quest through Mammoth Miniatures. Um, you can still download Planet 28 for free from War Games Vault, the first edition, all three books. The second edition will be coming hopefully before September, but it's pitched for September shipping from the Kickstarter. The PDF should hopefully be up for that. The PDF will always be free as well with the second edition. That's that's going to be free from Wargames Vault, just like the first edition. So if you're interested in it, by all means, get the first edition. We've got a very lovely and active Facebook group, uh, the Planet 28 Brutal Quest Mammoth Miniatures Gaming Group, if I remember rightly what it's called, um, where I'm always around to answer questions or help people out or take criticism kindly and with aplomb. Uh, but yeah, by all means, check it out and hopefully find some joy in it. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. Okay. Well, next seems like you. a dignified pitch. <laughs> Buy more stuff. <laughs> yeah, that too. All right, Nick. Well, thank you for uh, joining us today. And for everyone listening, no thank you for joining us at Miniature Wargaming Labs. And we'll see you next Thanks time. Thanks for having me. Wonderful.